All right, go ahead and stand to your feet, if you will. We're going to read some passages here. And if you will, follow along with me, and I'll try to connect all this, and it'll all make sense, I believe, by the end of the message. First off, we're going to start in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, and verse 23. Romans 3, verse 10, it says, And as, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And then if you will look at verse 23 in that same chapter, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Father, I thank you for the reading of Romans chapter 3. And Lord, thank you for blessing us with your word. I humbly ask that this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand this truth from Romans 3, and then here in a moment as we read Romans um, Mark 14, that you'd help us there as well. Thank you, Lord. You will turn over to Mark chapter 14 and read with me verses 43 through 52. It says, verse 43, And immediately while he yet spake cometh Judas, one of the twelve, And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Father, again, I just want to thank you for the reading of these passages as well. We humbly ask that you'd help us this morning to have a better understanding of the truth that uh, you have before us today. May our hearts be set on you and may your will be done. In Jesus' precious name we do pray. Amen. You can go and be seated. Now, I read two passages that you may say, I don't understand how these connect. Well, I hope this morning I can help us to connect these passages. Jesus finished his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and for three faithful hours he prayed that the Father would allow the cup to pass from him. And as I spoke about last week, the cup that he asked to be passed on was not his death, but it was his temporary separation from the Father, that the Father could not look on his Son as he became sin for us. In Mark's account, Mark's account will suggest here in Mark 14, verse 43, that Jesus became aware of his coming captors before they ever arrived there in the garden. You would see that in verse 42, rise up and let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. 
And then the next events happened very quickly. As really, we could, we could say very easily, I think, that the, the greatest act of betrayal in history takes place right here in these passages. When not just Judas, but mankind as a whole, betrays the Son of God, proving that there is without a doubt none righteous, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, we see that truth. There's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43 and on, you find there's a, a, a number of characters that are there, groups of people. You have Judas Iscariot. Most of us see him as a devil. You have the temple guard who comes in the name of the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders of Israel. These three groups are so significant in the nation of Israel because they represent spiritual leaders, Bible scholars, and even those who are mature in the faith. And then you have the disciples of Jesus who are also here. Those who prior said, we would die for you, Lord. We would never let anything happen to you. We will stand with you until the very end. And then you have another who is a young man or a young child who's clothed in a linen garment. And I believe all of these individuals represent the whole of mankind as all of them proved that there's none righteous, no, not one, as they all were guilty of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ here in our passages this morning. I've got four simple things that I believe will build on one another, and then we'll end up back in Romans 3, believe it or not, by the end of the message. And I've got a passage I'll share with you from there. And these four things, I'm going to try to just gradually make my way through these verses, and I hope that they'll help you this morning. There were some things that I believe the Lord showed me concerning this message, and um, I hope it'll be a help. This morning's message is titled, None Righteous, No, Not One. The first thing I want to show you is found in verses 43 through 45, and it's this simple truth. Dead religion gives Christ the kiss of death. As we see in these passages, Judas, who was supposedly a friend of Jesus, tells the, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders and even the temple guard that the token that he would give them so that they would recognize Jesus amongst all the others is that he will give him a kiss. And, you know, this is still a fairly common practice in other parts of the world where they would kiss uh, to show a type of endearment on, the, uh, on either cheek. And that's exactly what would happen here. And this was a Jewish custom that uh, a student would kiss the rabbi in such a way to show honor and respect for that one, almost as if that was their father, their spiritual father, their spiritual teacher. He says, I'll give you this token so that you might find Jesus. Now, here's one thing that this will tell us, and this is not even a part of the message. This is just extra for you. This tells us Jesus was not a tall, thin, well-chiseled, Caucasian male with blue eyes and sandy blonde hair, as many of the pictures of him depict. If that were the case, don't you think he would have stood out amongst a bunch of Hebrews? But he blended right in. There was nothing about his form that really drew anyone to him from a physical point of view. He just blended right in with everyone else. And Judas knew who he was, so Judas had to identify him by way of this kiss of betrayal or this kiss of death, which is often called. So it says here in the passage, verse 43, if you'll look, it says, 
And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and stabs. Stabs were clubs. You know what they were planning to do? They were going to either beat Jesus or kill Jesus. What do you do with a sword? You kill somebody. What do you do with a club? You beat them. So they were planning to be aggressive with him if need be. They were coming as an army against the Son of God. This army comes from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the ones who should have known God, the religious zealots in the land of Israel at this time. And it shows us that though these were so religious, it shows us that dead religion will often give Christ the kiss of death. As it goes into verse 44, And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. Now this is not Judas concerned about the well-being of Jesus Christ. The word safely is actually defined also as securely. We don't use it this way anymore, but it meant that they would lead him away in such a secure fashion that he would not cause any problems. And I'll get to that here shortly about why that is so significant. And then in verse 45, and as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. We find that first off, when it comes to dead religion giving Christ the kiss of death, the idea is that in religion, in dead religion, there's often knowledge there of the things of God. You can go through a church like this. You can go through other churches. You can go through other um, other types of churches, denominations and such. And you can find people that are very religious. But that religion is dead because they have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They go through routines. They go through motions. They know what to say and when to say it. They know the practices. They know the customs. They know the ritualistic things, and that's become their God. And that God, we often call it religion, but it's dead religion. And dead religion rejects the presence of Christ in that person's life. Jesus here brings forth a message that says that on the law, really all of the law hangs on two commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, who were the religious leaders of the land, they should have recognized that as this is God's word, and yet what they do, they rejected that because they had their own selfish gain in mind. And they were really becoming their own gods, or they had become their own gods. And what they had done is they had given Christ the kiss of death to send him out from themselves and away from their life. They had a knowledge of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but it says knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge will often puffeth up. I know people right now who have been in this church who have still not accepted Christ by faith, because they're still looking for more facts. They want more knowledge. But the problem with knowledge is knowledge puffs up. The the nation of Israel had the historical account of God's dealings with people on earth. The chief elders had access to the Word of God when no one else had it. The scribes had access to the Word of God and, in fact, knew it as no one else knew it. And the elders were the mature leaders at that time and very influential, and they had too seen things from God. And yet all of that knowledge did not help them, did it? See, knowledge can be something that causes that dead religion to give Christ that kiss of death and never to enter into the relationship with Christ. Knowledge can be good, knowledge can be bad. 
but Judas had knowledge of Jesus. Another thing is the association. Often with religion, there's an association with Christ without actually knowing Christ. Go with me to Mark. I'm sorry, not Mark. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. I'm going to start in verse 21. You know what? Actually, I'm going to start in verse 20 because I like that verse too. Let me start in verse 20. All right. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Association is not enough. Just because a person wears a charm of a cross around their neck or they attend a church that says church on the outside and claims to be Christian, that does not mean that they are a born-again child of God filled with the power of God and in the family of God. That doesn't mean all that. Christ right here identifies that you will know my people by their fruits. He goes on and he says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God, but it's only, look verse 21 at the very end, but it's only those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now someone says, but I thought, wouldn't that be works to get saved? No, that doesn't mean works. But when it comes to salvation, what is salvation? How is a person saved? Repent and believe. Repentance is a change of one's mind that leads to a change in one's life. And belief is belief in what God has done, not what I've done. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they needed to believe on the Lord Jesus just as much as anybody else. They had all the knowledge. They said, no, we'll enter the kingdom. But the Lord says, no, you don't do the will of my Father because my Father has sent me. And my Father has commanded that you repent, change your mind about your wickedness and your sin, and believe on me, the Savior of the world. And despite the fact that they have association mentioned in verses uh, 20 through 23 here, he says, depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. You understand the difference? A lot of people say, I know Jesus. But does Jesus know you? Does he know you? And in Mark chapter 14, we find here that the chief priests were not known by Jesus in such a way. They weren't known by God in such a way. The scribes weren't known by God in that way. They were, they were going through the motions of dead religion, and all the while they were given the Christ the kiss of death to send him on his way. Oh, Judas Iscariot had access to Jesus. If you're still in Matthew, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 11. Judas Iscariot had access to Jesus. You know, oftentimes we have access to God. I think today you have access to God being here in a Christian church that is, is trying um, to make the effort of preaching the Word of God. There's access to you today to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a camera that streams things on the Internet. There's access there into the message right now that is being preached. So we are given access to God today. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. 
It says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, he doesn't limit that to anybody. Did you know Jesus, when he said that, he was saying that to the chief priest, to the scribes, to the elders, and even to Judas Iscariot. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Become my disciple, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, the sad tragedy is Jesus spent three and a half years in this ministry, not only with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, hearing of his great work, but also with Judas Iscariot himself walking hand in hand, step by step, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He had access to it. And yet, somehow, Judas had become guilty of dead religion that did not welcome the Christ into the heart of Jesus. And instead, another one entered the heart of Jesus. And I'll get, I mean, Judas, and I'll, I'll get there here shortly. Go with me over to Romans chapter one. Even in religion, there's knowledge, there's association. Even in religion, there's access. You can be close, but not quite there. And then in, even in our lives, apart from dead religion, there's awareness of God. Romans chapter one, verse 21 says this, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. God has given us a witness of himself. He has stepped into the, everyone's life at some point or another. God has tried to reveal himself to you, to me. And often, even though we might know a part of God, we don't glorify him as God. We allow him to become something else. And through our, as it says here, Foolish hearts, because of our foolish hearts, we darken the reality of a living God. There's awareness. Judas had awareness. Christ was right there, right in his presence. He heard the message. He knew he could have believed, and yet he rejected the message. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they should have known, yet they rejected the message. And what happens in dead religion is even though all these things are possible, it gives the kiss of death because ultimately dead religion will always give place to the devil. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke gives account of the same event at, uh, there in the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus finishes his prayer and things that had happened. But prior to all of this, something else had happened in the life of Judas. For three and a half years, he could have received the truth and believed and God could have been present in his heart and life as well, but instead we find Luke chapter 22, verse 2, I'll start there. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. They sought how they might kill Jesus. And then verse 3, look at verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. See, Judas had gone about in this, this dead religion without a true relationship with the living God. And what that did was that gave place to the devil in his life. And eventually what happened was Satan actually ended up possessing Judas prior to the events in the Garden of Gethsemane and energizing Judas to go forth and do the things that he had done and eventually give Christ the kiss of death. 
Now, how does all this tie to religion? I'm saying that if we get caught up in religion without a true relationship with Christ, without faith and looking for more facts, it's dead and it gives place to the devil. And often it leads to no fruit, no spiritual fruit in a person's life. It leads to confusion. It leads to doubt. It leads to unbelief. It leads to more chaos than it does anything else. And it's because of dead religion that is not is not connected to the living God. Go back with me to Mark chapter 14. So the first warning we find from the text is that this dead religion here kisses God without knowing God. And that's what religion will do. Religion will kiss God without knowing God. I've met very, uh, I've, I've met uh, quite a few people that are religious minded. Some time ago, I think I was with Brother Sean and we met a man who's very religious minded at the gun shop. You remember that? And he had a lot of things to say about God. And in the same breath as he was speaking about God, he would almost take God's name in vain or use gross profanity and other things that would prove otherwise. But yet in his mind, he says, no, through my religion, I know God. That's not true. Religion leads to death because religion in itself will always give Christ the kiss of death and send him away. One must know God, know him. Know him. Judas desired to remove Christ, as I had said earlier, securely. Now, let me remind you about what has happened. Satan indwelled Judas. Judas gets the army, the temple guard. They head to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Jesus. Judas understood some of the power of Jesus, but Satan understood it far more than Judas did. And when he, when, when we read in the text now, when he says in... Verse 44, take him and lead him away securely. In our Bible, it says safely, but it's referring to shackle him up, get the armies around him. He's powerful. Be sure he won't break free of this. Satan was concerned about the one that he was about to arrest. He knew him better than Judas knew him. And it took the indwelling of Satan and Judas for him finally to do something that made sense. Be scared of God. The fear of God will lead people often to repentance. My second point for you this morning, and this will be in verses 46 through 48, we find the works of the flesh pale in comparison to the works of the Spirit. The works of the flesh pale in comparison to the works of the Spirit. Look at verse 46 with me. And they laid their hands on him and they took him. Well, this is a... Tremendous amount of soldiers here. Uh, you have temple guard, but you could have also had Roman guard. It was a great multitude, as it said earlier. So we know that this is a tremendous amount of guards to take one man. They laid their hands on him. They had a hold of him. And then we read in verse 47, and one of them that stood by drew a sword. We know in the other gospels, this is Peter, the apostle. He draws this sword out. He smote the ear of the high priest. He cut his ear off. He's probably going for his neck. Said he caught his ear. In another gospel, it says that Jesus then healed the ear of that, that one. Verse 48, Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? Works of the flesh pale in comparison to the works of the Spirit. We find here that a great multitude of soldiers came forth to stop Jesus. But I want to show you something in Matthew 26, which is a parallel passage of this passage. And I know we're doing a little bit more of a study this morning, but I still, I hope the message will help. Matthew 26, verses 52 through 53. 
before we read those passages, I'll remind you, Jesus just spent three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to His heavenly Father, filled with the Holy Spirit at this point, surrendered to the full will of the Father. The disciples didn't do that. Peter, James, and John fell asleep every hour. They could barely hold on to pray just a little bit to seek the power of God so that they would not be led into temptation. You have one who goes forth in the power of God. You have another who goes forth without the power of God. You have one who stands and accepts the will of God. You have another who draws his sword to try to attack the soldiers and to accomplish his own will. But I want to point something out to you. Even though there was a great multitude of soldiers, look at um, Matthew 26, 52 through 53. Same account, more knowledge. Here it is. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. He said, Don't don't do this in your flesh. Look at verse 53. Thankest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Not through the sword, not through the shield, not through the flesh, but through the Spirit. He says that I might pray to my father. I could have prayed. And my father would send me 12 legions of angels if that were so, uh, what he desired to do, if that were his will. See, the, the spirit is always more powerful than the flesh. And in the case of Jesus, he was surrendered, yielded to the will of God, and he could have stopped everything and prayed to the father. And the father would have given him exactly what he needed. And so that tells us that the power of his father was far greater than the works of the flesh. But there's another one. Go with me over to John chapter 18. I always love reading this one. I just try to visualize it myself, and I I just think it'd just be wonderful to be a fly on the wall when this event took place. John chapter 18. Not only is there power in the Father when we pray, but John 18, look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? This is when the multitude of uh, Temple Guard and Judas come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sees them coming. He says, Whom seek ye? They all answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And we know prior there was that kiss to identify who Jesus was. As soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. The power of his word sent them to the ground. Could you imagine being a fly on the wall and watching that? All he said is, I am he. And suddenly that great multitude just dropped like dominoes back on the ground from the power of God's word. And it goes on, it says, um, he says, I am he. They went backward, fell to the ground. Then again, or then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which you spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. And then after that, it speaks about how Simon drew his sword, smote the high priest, and so forth and so on, as the account that we read in Mark chapter 14. What we find is the works of the flesh were this. The soldiers of the chief priest, the elders, and the scribes sent forth to stop the Son of God. Then we have Judas Iscariot, who says, let's get as many soldiers as we can. Even Satan himself working through Judas to utilize the flesh to overcome the Son of God. And yet, 
On the other side of that, we find the great power is really in the power of the Father and the power of His Word and ultimately the power of the Spirit. See, the works of the flesh always pale in comparison to the works of the Spirit. And that's why dead religion is just that. It is works of the flesh. And it will always give the Christ a kiss of death. And the and religion in itself, by itself, is dead. It's empty. It's when a person is truly filled with the Spirit of God. How can you be filled? Don't grieve and don't quench. How can you do that? Well, we're going to talk about that here shortly into the next point. The third point I give you here is this. The spiritually dead cannot hear spiritual truth. Look at verse 49 with me. Mark chapter 14 again. The spiritually dead cannot hear spiritual truth. Verse 49, after Jesus is being arrested and these great events have taken place, it says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. Daily. For three and a half years, on and off, Christ had returned down to Jerusalem. And there he had taught. And these temple guards had heard him teach and preach his message. They heard truth come from the mouth of the Lagos, the Word, which is God's manifestation of His truth. And they heard the Word come, and they never heard the words. They didn't have ears to hear. As Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. He that had ears to hear, let him hear. And they missed that. And it was because they were spiritually dead, therefore they could not understand spiritual truth. The same is true today. Often people want emotion to stir them. They want something of the flesh to, to feel, make them feel as though they're drawing closer to God, but that's not how God works. He's looking for those who will worship Him in two things, spirit and truth. And that is the simple formula that God has called us forth to worship Him by. And yet more people respond to emotional things than they will to the actual spirit movement of the spirit of the truth of God. Why? Because the spiritually dead cannot hear spiritual truth. Why is a person spiritually dead? Go to Ephesians with me. The temple guards heard Jesus preaching multiple times there in the temple, as he even said himself. And as they heard him preaching, they never once heard the truth. And now they come forth with swords and stabs or clubs to arrest one almost as if he's a thief. And they know he's not a thief. His testimony was sure. And always he had the same message. But yet they were spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Verse 1. It says, And you hath he quickened, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan is still working in the rest of the world, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyles, in times past in the lust of our flesh. That's how we lived, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. That's what we wanted to do. And of the mind, that's how we thought. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were just like the rest of the world. But for those who have been woken up, those who have been born again, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. 
by grace you're saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We were once dead, but now we're alive, simply because of the presence of Christ, not by dead religion, not by works of the flesh, but simply by the presence of Christ in the heart of an individual. We are made alive when we were once dead. And our ears can be opened that we might hear spiritual truth. But it's not until, it's not until we are revived by the Spirit of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritually dead cannot hear spiritual truth. And what keeps us spiritually dead is really just two main things that I've written down in my notes here. Sin and Satan. Judas was guilty of sin. He walked in dead religion. He walked with the Lord. Yes, he did some good deeds, but our good works are filthy rags in the eyes of God. Judas went forth to do the same works that Peter and James and Andrew and all the others had done, and yet Judas was dead in his efforts and his energy and his works. He had dead religion. Dead religion. There was no fruit in his life whatsoever that would say, this is a child of God and God knows this one. Sin kept him that way. His love of money. He was probably a thief prior to his involvement with Jesus. He coveted after money often. He held the money bag. But then what happened in Luke 22? Satan entered into him. The two things that will keep us spiritually dead, sin and Satan. For a child of God, the same can be true for you. You say, preacher, I don't hear God anymore. Preacher, I don't feel close to God anymore. Preacher, I just don't feel like God's working through me. Have you examined your life? Is there sin there? The sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Are you walking by faith? If not, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. Has Satan found place in your life due to unconfessed sin of bitterness or lust or, or fear or unbelief or whatever have you? Any of those things would give place to the devil, and it leads to a dead religion that doesn't have the living God in the midst of it. There's no life in that religion, and there was no life in Judas. And that's why he was able, without hesitation, to enter into the garden on that night under the cover of darkness, hidden from the, from the public, hidden from the light of the sun, and walk up to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and say, Master, Master, and lean in and kiss Him. Master, Master means rabbi. Rabbi was a term of endearment. And certainly it was something special for a student to say to one who was teaching him. And yet he was able without hesitation to do such things. And many people that end up with dead religion, they'll do the same thing. They'll blaspheme the name of God and not think twice about it. They'll neglect the works of Christ and not think twice about it. They'll take the vessel that is their body that has become the temple of the living God and they'll use it for works of darkness instead of works of righteousness and not think twice about it. Why? Because dead religion will always give Christ the kiss of death. And it proves that, again, there's none righteous, no, not one. The spiritually dead cannot hear spiritual truth. And then my fourth point this morning, as I wrap this up, as we move into the last few passages, there's a little bit of an odd story here. But I want you to, and I'll give you the point here in a second. I want to go and read this 
go back to verse 49 with me. We're in Mark 14. It says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is the will of the Father that I might be taken, is what Jesus was saying. But they couldn't hear the truth either. Verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled. You know, that's not referring to the temple guard who were there to arrest him. That's referring to his followers. The same ones who prior had claimed that even in this night, or no, it was uh, verse 31, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. And yet, moments later, because all they had was religion with a lot of zeal, we find that all of them forsook Christ and they fled for their lives proving their own unrighteousness. But then there's this story in verses 51 and 52 about this young man. It says, and there followed him a certain young man. That means a youth. So uh, we would consider that some type of adolescent. Having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. This linen cloth was a type of nightgown. One would sleep in it at night. And this is all speculation at this point because it's not in, in the scriptures. But later in the book of Acts, we learn that John Mark, who is the writer of this gospel, uh, that his mother would hold prayer meetings here in uh, near this area in her house, and that the apostles and the Christians in the book of Acts, which is just a few years later, would gather at Mark's mom's house for prayer meetings. And it's believed that Mark's mom was first a disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Mark becomes a disciple of Jesus also. And that they had seen the temple guard head out to the Garden of Gethsemane and that John Mark quickly throws on his nightgown without anything underneath it because he was in haste to get to Jesus to warn him about what was taking place. And then he arrives too late as he sees this whole event taking place here. And he's in this nightgown-like garment. But then it goes on, it says in verse 51, and the young men, the young men, plural, laid hold on him. Some young men must have been there that were going to try to capture Mark, thinking maybe he needed to go home or maybe he needed to go and talk to one of the chief priests. I'm not sure, it doesn't say. But they tried to grab hold of him and then Mark himself, well, if it is Mark, I should say, if it is Mark, this young man, he left the linen cloth and he fled from them naked. Sounds so strange, doesn't it? But it was as if the garment that was cast about his body so that he might hastily get there was ripped off of him and he fled naked. My fourth point is this. The righteousness of Christ exposes the nakedness of sin. The righteousness of Christ exposes the nakedness of sin. This young man, this youth, left behind this linen garment. Often in Scripture, we find that the linen garment was a symbol of righteousness. But it wasn't the righteousness of Christ. It was the righteousness that that this young man had casted upon himself. And then we also learn in Scripture that nakedness, nakedness was the first sin of shame mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 when their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. It reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the truth is, in the presence of God, no matter if you are the chief priest, you are the scribe, 
You are the elder, you are Judas Iscariot, you are the followers of Christ, or you are this young child who was robed in this linen garment. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all naked in our sin before a holy and righteous God. And often with religion, we try to cover up what we are, but it cannot be hid by our religion the fact that we are sinners who have come short of the glory of God. And the only way to cover our unrighteousness is to be robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that this linen cloth, which is the Greek word sindon, and it is mentioned only this uh, this number of times, is mentioned six times in our New Testament. Six times. We find that the first mention of this would be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 59. And it mentions Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 27, verse 59. That's not right. I didn't write that down right. I think I mean chapter 1. Verse 59, let me see if I got that one right. But it speaks about how this linen garment, that's not right either, I wrote that verse down right. But it speaks about how this linen garment was actually used to wrap Christ up when he was a babe. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, that linen garment that he was wrapped in was sindon, which is the linen cloth that Mark found upon himself. The second mention we find is in Mark 14, which is the young men's garment that he wore, a linen cloth that covered himself. And then the third mention is during Jesus' death, it's the garment, the fabric that they used to wrap his body after he died. So it was birthing rags, it was burial rags, but also it was what was wrapped up around this young man. And I believe it reminds us that man's righteous garments will not remain in the presence of God. Christ was wrapped in His garments when He was born. He went on to live a sinless and perfect life. After He died, He was wrapped in those garments and He rose from the grave. But in the case of this young man, He wrapped Himself in a similar linen garment, but yet when He was in the presence of Christ, His nakedness was exposed. Because again, there is none righteous, no, not one. I want to take you to a few passages here as we wrap this up. Isaiah 61.10 We'll start there, and then Revelation 19. So just get those two prepared, if you will. Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10. We read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. And in the same way, my God hath clothed me with garments of salvation. You see that dead religion, though it might seem on the surface impactful and useful, it's nothing without the presence of God, because it cannot remove the unrighteousness of an individual. Revelation chapter 19, you will flip there towards the end of your Bible, the last book in your Bible. 
Verses 7 through 8 say this. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Being within the church, which is what he's referring to here as the bride of the Lamb, the church, the individuals that are a part of that are robed in such garments that declare them to be righteous in the eyes of God. I've got two more passages here. Go back with me to Romans chapter 5. Continue to follow with me here. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And then I told you we would land with Romans 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore being justified by faith, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, when we started this whole journey together here in this, in this message, we see a group of men who come out to arrest the God-man. They come in unrighteousness, though they would claim the name of religion. We have followers who stand by the righteous Son of God who claim they would die for Him, but yet that was all of their flesh. Because deep down in their spirit, their will would not align with such things. And they fled away from the the arrest of Jesus. Then we have one last young man who's there, robed in a linen garment, a child even, seeming to be innocent, but yet what happened when he was finally seized? He fled, and the garment was left behind, and his nakedness was exposed. When we began, we read Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. And it went through a list of all of these things that come up in all of our lives that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I want you to go back to Romans 3 and move into verse 24. And I want to show you the remaining part of these passages. Verse 24. Though we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. The righteousness that we have is is none because there's none righteous, no, not one. And therefore, in the very beginning of this thing, when a person is lost and realizes that they are unrighteous in the eyes of God, they must come by way of faith, recognizing their failure, their sin, and turning to the Savior to, to, to accept His righteousness for yourself. And then for those who were saved, not to go forth according to the flesh, according to religion, according to unrighteousness, but to continue to live according to the righteousness of Christ, recognizing that it's only by our faith in God that we'll ever accomplish anything that will bring glory and honor to God. And if you want to be one who brings forth fruit worthy of the Master, then be sure that the righteousness that you display in this world is not your own, but it's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you this morning for the message. I pray that it was able to touch hearts this morning as you saw fit to touch them, Lord. We recognize here in the Scriptures how Judas went forth, one who walked with Jesus day after day. And yet, the Scriptures show us that he didn't truly know you, and he certainly was not a child of yours, Father. Lord, religion sent Judas to the grave and ultimately to hell. And this morning, Father, it could be that there's someone here that for many years they've gone through the motions of religion, but they've yet to feel your presence in their life. Lord, they've checked the boxes. They've done the acts. Lord, they've had the association and the awareness and the access. Lord, they've yet to really feel your presence in their life. I pray, Father, you'd be faithful to your word this morning. You say that whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved and that we will become the temple of the living God, that we'll be born again and added to your precious family. Lord, that we would be your children and that Christ would be our King. And this morning, Father, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, it could be that right now you're working on a heart. Lord, I pray that you'd help that person right now by faith to be willing to admit that they have sinned and come short of your glory, and that simply by faith, not by facts, that they would call on your name this morning, that they'd call on the name of the Son of God and call Jesus into their life and receive Him as their Savior. Would you help them now, Lord? Father, would you help them now, please, I pray. Lord, you said none can come to you unless the Father draw them. We pray this morning that He would draw those who need to be drawn.